Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. To take up this topic of spirit, soul, and body, according to Thomas Aquinas, it's an unusual topic, I think, by contemporary standards, so let's jump into it. In philosophical anthropology, it is standard to distinguish between bipartite and tripartite accounts of human beings. Bipartite accounts explain human beings in terms of two principles, soul and body. <clears throat> tripartite accounts explain human beings in terms of three principles, usually spirit, soul, and body, but the terms may vary. Max Scheler, Edith Stein, Carol Wojtyla, and Viktor Frankl are only a few examples from the last century of thinkers who proposed tripartite accounts of human beings. But scholars tell us that tripartite accounts were common among the fathers of the church. Aquinas knew well how the fathers commonly thought in tripartite terms, but Aquinas also knew how tripartite schemes can go wrong. So he offers a nuanced and unique tripartite scheme of his own, and the purpose of my paper today is to outline his scheme. Uh, and I'm going to show some of its explanatory power. First, I'm going to consider an objection to Aquinas's anthropology and offer a brief reply. Really, the whole paper is kind of a reply. Then I will offer a sketch of his tripartite account, and then I'll show how it accounts for our experience of ourselves as subjects. So first, an objection and a brief reply to uh, an objection to Aquinas's account and a brief reply. The Spanish personalist philosopher Juan Manuel Burgos raises the following objection to Aquinas's anthropology, and I'm just going to quote Burgos at some length here. Quote, classical philosophy insisted upon the integral unity of man in terms of body and soul. The paradigm is Thomas Aquinas, who, with his description of the soul as the substantial form of the body, integrated the Platonic and Aristotelian traditions in search of a unity, a subsistent soul which is also functionally and operatively related to a body. The brilliance of this development is well known, but we may ask ourselves if this approach fully achieved its objective, above all on an operative level, because despite the existence of this unity formally and de jure, it could fall victim to a de facto dualism, as seen in the tendency, almost inevitable due to the bipartition of the human person, to assign each of the human qualities, structures, or dimensions to the body or to the soul to think of man as a composite of body and soul, and in this sense to operationally perpetuate a dualism despite the intention, in theory, to eliminate it. On the other hand, this division leaves in no man's land some structures which do not fit well with either of the two dimensions, such as the structures related to levels of not entirely lucid consciousness, for example, sleep, some imaginative processes, the unconscious, and so on. And it is also very complex 
to deal with everything related to subjectivity as an experience, end quote. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage or this objection all at once, but it seems to turn on three basic claims. First, Thomas Aquinas held a bipartite and not a tripartite account of human beings. Second, although Aquinas's hylomorphic account of human nature is against dualism, substance dualism in principle, Aquinas nonetheless speaks of humans as composed of soul and body and assigns some human features to soul and others to body, and in so doing, he perpetuates a dualism in practice. Third, Aquinas's bipartite anthropology cannot easily or simply account for certain givens of human experience, for example, our experience of ourselves as subjects or the psychological unconscious. Burgos then goes on to call for the development of a tripartite account of human persons uh, in terms of three levels, the somatic, the psychological, and the spiritual dimensions of the person. So what shall we say in reply to Burgos? In reply to the first claim that Aquinas holds a bipartite rather than a tripartite account of human beings, let us distinguish. Thomas Aquinas is a bipartist when it comes to the intrinsic principles of human nature, but a tripartite, tripartite, tripartist when it comes to the human being's orders of operation. The intrinsic or constitutive principles of a human being are soul and body. Um, and Aquinas was aware of certain people who had advanced the claim that there are three constitutive principles of human nature, spirit, soul, and body. Aquinas also knew that the church had condemned that view at the Fourth Council of Constantinople, a teaching that the catechism still cites today. But Aquinas also had philosophical reasons for rejecting it and for holding that soul and body are what make us to be human. However, he also had philosophical, scriptural, and patristic reasons to affirm that spirit, too, is in some way or another part of our being and activity or operation. The question is, how? He says it is not a constitutive principle, but an operative one, and it is special in many ways, as we shall see. In reply to Burgos's second claim that Aquinas's hylomorphism perpetuates dualism in practice, let us distinguish. It is possible for a Thomist to absolutize the bipartite side of Aquinas's account of human beings and ignore his tripartite side. Were one to do so, and perhaps some Thomists do so, perhaps many Thomists do so, one might well perpetuate dualistic thinking in practice. But it is also possible not to absolutize the bipartite side of Aquinas's account. Instead, one might take the metaphysical unity of the human being as a given or a starting point and, accentu and accentuate the tripartite side of Aquinas's anthropology. Instead of speaking of a human being as a composite of soul and body and stopping short with assigning some powers, habits, or passions to the soul and others to the body, one might instead say that the gist of Aquinas's anthropology is this. 
every human person is a psychosomatic unit who lives spiritually, sensually, and physically, and at least potentially supernaturally. Such is the account I will take first steps in sketching out today. In reply to Burgos's third claim that bipartite anthropologies cannot account for certain givens of our experience without excessive complexity, I'll take but one of Burgos's examples, the experience of subjectivity, and show how Aquinas accounts for it. Aquinas's account is simple and elegant, and Bernard Lonergan has developed it to the point of being a rigorous science. But now, to the second section, which is really the main part of the paper, Thomas Aquinas's tripartite scheme. One way to outline Aquinas's tripartite scheme, briefly, is to go through some of his commentaries on scripture passages that refer to spirit, soul, and body, or passages that refer to a distinction between soul and spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, May the God of peace preserve you whole and entire, spirit, soul, and body, irreproachable at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Aquinas begins his commentary on the verse by noting that some people hold that in addition to soul and body, the spirit is a third constitutive principle of human beings, but the church condemns such a view. Rather, in this passage, Aquinas says, the word body refers to the body, the word soul refers to the form of the body, and the word spirit refers to the principal power of the soul, also called mind. The spirit, he says, or the mind, is the soul's powers of intellect and will. And it's worth pausing to consider this interpretation a little bit. For Aquinas, the human soul is at once both the form of the body and the subject of spiritual operations of its own, distinct from any and all operations of the body. It might embarrass some Thomists who are intent on proposing hylomorphism against substance, substance dualism, but Aquinas actually affirms in several places that the human soul is a spiritual substance of the lowest order. That might sound at first like an affirmation of a ghost in the machine, but it is not. For unlike spiritual substances of a higher order, or Cartesian souls, um, the pure spirits, or the angels, on Aquinas's account, uh, on Aquinas's account, the human soul subsists as the substantial form of the human body. The human soul communicates its own to be, its essay, to the body. The soul makes the body to be, to be human, and to live in first act. The soul does not do so as a motor or extrinsic cause, but as the formal cause of the life of the body. To animate the body proceeds from the essence of the soul and not some power of the soul. Aquinas is very clear about that. The human soul, <clears throat> in a sense, just is the life of the body, but it is also more. Like spiritual substances of a higher order, 
The human soul is also the subject of knowing and loving of a kind beyond all sensation and passion of the lower powers. For the soul is able to know truth and love goodness as such. The abilities to do so are not the essence of the soul, but powers, um, are, but powers really distinct from what the soul is. Yet the same powers or abilities to know truth and love goodness flow naturally from what the soul is. We can summarize the soul this way, the human soul. The human soul is the substantial form of the human body, but the soul has powers of intellect and will. The intellect and will together are called mind, spirit, the spiritual part of the soul, or the spiritual power of the soul. All those expressions co-refer to this one power. Yet, Aquinas goes further when interpreting the verse from 1 Thessalonians on spirit, soul, and body. He says that in this passage, Paul is warning against sin. And one might sin either in reason, uh, sensuality, or in bodily execution of acts. On this interpretation, the word body still refers to the body. The word spirit still refers to the spiritual power of the soul. But now, uh, the word soul refers not only to the soul as the form of the body, but uh, more specifically to the sensualitas of the human being, sensuality. Sensualitas means the sensory appetitive powers and their operations, namely the passions, but with a connotation of the potential for moral disorder. The same kind of connotation is there in Latin and in English. Thomas says something similar when commenting on another passage of scripture, the greatest commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In this interpretation, in his interpretation of the greatest commandment, Aquinas says the word soul refers to the lower, the lower appetites. Since the lower appetites and passions presuppose the powers and activities of the sensory cognition, of sensory cognition, the term soul can sometimes refer at least implicitly to the whole order of sensory powers and activities in the human being. Turning to another verse of scripture, Hebrews 5.12 tells of how the word of God cuts to the division between soul and spirit. In his commentary on this passage, Aquinas first quotes 1 Thessalonians 5.23 on spirit, soul, and body, and now gives the, um, but now gives that verse from 1 Thessalonians a much more extensive interpretation. Once again, he says, it does not mean three constitutive principles, since that position is condemned. Once again, the word body refers to the body, but now he says, the word spirit refers to that in us which is akin to the pure spirits. And the word soul refers to that in us which is akin to the brutes. He says the spirit is, quote, the spirit is the human mind, namely the intellect and will, end quote. He also says the soul, quote, vivifies the body 
and is called soul properly, end quote. And again, he goes further to say that the word of God cuts to, to the division between soul and spirit in the sense of bringing to light three distinctions. So now we're going to get more distinctions. The first distinction is between reason and sensualitas. If he says the former acts without the body and the latter acts with it, obviously he means the soul's activities of intelligence and volition are intrinsically immaterial, even though their activity also presupposes the workings of sensory powers as a necessary condition. The sensuality or the passions are acts of physical organs. Once again, the word soul now begins to stand for sensuality and the passions. The second distinction is within sensuality itself. Human sensuality works in two ways. On the one hand, it tends towards its proper object. Our passions have a life of their own in reaction to various sensory stimuli. On the other hand, our passions participate in reason or in the activity of the spirit. And elsewhere, Aquinas explains this participation in terms of the passions being obedient to reason. They're not necessarily easily or immediately obedient, but they're obedient at least in principle. They're subject in some way to voluntary moderation. The sensory passions then are at one and the same time bodily, in one sense, their acts of bodily organs, and spiritual, in another sense, they participate in the life of reason. The third distinction is within the reason or the spiritual power of the soul. On the one hand, reason tends towards God. And Aquinas says, quote, this is what is supreme in it, this tendency to go Godward. On the other hand, reason tends towards either spiritual effects or temporal effects. Temporal effects seem to be the creatures of God in the natural environment, and spiritual effects seems to be the effects of one's own spiritual power, namely, one's own acts of intellect and will. To be aware of spiritual effects seems to be some form of self-knowledge and the acts of one's own spirit. Overall, Aquinas' commentary on Hebrews 5.12 expands on the position that he laid out earlier. Body refers to the body. Soul refers to both the form of the body and the sensuality. And uh, spirit refers to the spiritual power of the soul or mind. Yet, spirit, soul, and body are not compartmentalized. The spirit or mind has the soul for its subject, and to act needs the operations of sensory powers. The sensory powers tend of their own to react to sensory stimuli, but they also share in the life of the spirit and are subject to voluntary direction and moderation. The body is not only animated by the soul, but sensation and passion takes place with and through certain organs of the body. Thomas Aquinas is not committed to the view that everything in the human person is assignable either to body or to soul. 
Rather, some things, such as the human act of restraining some unruly passions, is an act of the person, operating spiritually, sensually, and physically concurrently, all at once. Another example of spirit, soul, and body working concurrently might be philosophical inquiry itself. And yet another example might be falling asleep. Besides scriptural commentaries, Aquinas' own treatises speak often of a threefold order of powers and activities in human beings. In the De Veritate, as well as in the Summa Theologiae, Aquinas affirms that there's a threefold division of powers into spiritual, sensitive, and vegetative. It is a division according to their mode of acting, he says. That's how he describes it in the De Veritate. Now, it's tempting to correlate this with spirit, soul, and body. Gregory of Nyssa, for example, does so and says the word body stands for the vegetative part or the vegetative powers, the word soul for the sensory part or the sensory powers, and the word spirit for the rational part uh, or power of the human being. But I am unaware of any place where Aquinas says exactly that. Nonetheless, there seems to be nothing to prevent us from including the vegetative powers and activities under the heading of body. Perhaps Aquinas is just taking it for granted that the body includes the vegetative powers. Uh, he's also taking it for granted that the order of sensory power includes the cogitative power, and cogitation is at once both an act of an organ, an act of experience, and an act of thought in some inchoate form. Though cogitation belongs to the sensory order, it too participates in the life of reason. One passage in the Summa Theologiae situates Aquinas' tripartite operational scheme into a bigger picture. He says this, quote, the life of man is twofold. That may sound like a bipartite thing, but you'll see it's going to uh, spell out differently. Oh, the life of man is twofold. One with respect to what is exterior according to sensible and corporeal nature. And according to this life, there is not in us any communicatio or conversatio with God or the angels. Uh, the, the other, the other life in man, the other is the spiritual life of man according to the mind. And according to this life, there is communicatio and conversatio with God and the angels, end quote. For Aquinas, the human person is a being that lives on the earth, dwells in the environment, and is part of the cosmos. The senses take in the physical world, and the passions react to it. But the mind of the human person is able to live in a way beyond the whole physical order the intellect of the person is able to become all things through understanding and even able to understand eternal things. Aquinas says that intellect understands eterna. It is connatural for us to know and to love the things of the environment, but the intellect is naturally able to know that God exists beyond the world of finite being. The will is able to go out in love to all things apprehended as good, and naturally loves God more than oneself. 
the mind is able to know and love God in an even higher way by grace. By grace, the human mind is able to commune personally with God and the angels. And to complete the big picture, the mind of the human being is where the image of God in us is found. And the mind grows into the likeness of God precisely to the extent that one knows God and loves God more than oneself. In order to tell the rest of the story of the human spirit, one also has to mention consciousness, moral conscience, and the capacity for free choice. We can only mention those things here in passing and say that all of them are activities of the spiritual power of the human soul or the mind. But just to show you that the picture of the mind is much richer than what we have time to spell out here. One final point in our outline, however, is worth noting carefully and well. It's how the philosophical tr tradition celebrates the spiritual power of the soul. Okay? In the Nicomachean Ethics, Book 9, Chapter 8, Aristotle says, quote, It is evident that everyone is, or chiefly is, this part. He means the soul's power of intellect, or noose. He repeats the point again in Nicomachean Ethics 10, Chapter 7. Quote, it may even be held that this is the true self of each. Aristotle argues that each human being can be said to be his or her intellect, or noose, in the sense that it is the principal part and the ruling part in each of us. For we customarily say that the principal part of a thing is the thing. What the ruler of a city does, the city is said to do. When the President of the United States signs a treaty, we say the United States signs a treaty. In this sense, one might say each person is his or her spiritual power or intellect, but only in this sense. Aristotle notes that what Aristotle is doing, I think, is he's noting the common intuition that my true self or the real me is my mind or what is going on in my mind. But he also subordinates that intuition to a larger account of what human beings are. Aristotle affirms a grain of truth in it, but with serious qualifications. He says the mind is the principal part of each of us, the ruling part, the most noble part, and even a divine part in some sense. But it is not the only part. It's not simply or, or exclusively the human being, for example, Socrates. Thomas Aquinas knows well such passages from Aristotle. He comments on them and makes the same affirmation in his own treatises. For Aquinas, the spiritual power of the soul, or the mind, is the principal part, the ruling part, the most noble part of the human being, and even a divine part in the sense of being in the image of God. But for all that, the mind or spirit is only a part of the person, not the whole person, not the person as such. And for those who need a reminder, it's not a third constitutive part in addition to body and soul, but only a potential part, a power of the soul. Without all these qualifications on, this, on spirit, it's all too easy to lapse 
into, the tr into thinking uh, or identifying the person with the spirit of the person or lapse into thinking, I am simply my spirit rather than the rest of my being. And Max Shaler walked right into that trap. I mean, he held that the person is the spirit of the person rather than the soul and the body of the person. So a person could carry out all sorts of acts with the body, but it was, it was the body's morally indifferent. Okay, so you could do one thing with your body, and in the depths of your spirit, you, as a person, are doing something very different. So it's a, a disintegrated account of the, of the human being. Although I think it's rather common on a popular level. The explanatory, now to the third section of my paper, the explanatory power of the account. Juan Manuel Burgos says that Aquinas's anthropology cannot account for certain givens of our experience without excessive complexity, and one of his examples is the experience of our subjectivity. However, Thomas's account of self-knowledge is simple and elegant. Every human person, per se, knows himself or herself in one of two ways. On the one hand, each human being has a singular self-knowledge, a singular self-knowledge. Each person is aware of himself or herself in a unique way. For each person immediately perceives his or her own intellectual acts. Perception in a, is a technical term for Aquinas, and he defines it as a notitia experimentalis or an experiential awareness and it is an act of the intellect, though always drawing, it seems, upon sensory experience of oneself. In other words, every human being experiences himself or herself by experiencing his or her own acts. To perceive or experience one's own acts also goes by the name of conscientia or consciousness. Thomists typically distinguish between a person's psychological consciousness and moral consciousness, but one way or another, Aquinas holds that it is a property of persons to experience themselves living, understanding, judging, willing, thinking, feeling, sensing, and so forth. It is possible, of course, for consciousness to be impeded by various factors like an accident or an injury. Since no one experiences himself or herself completely, there's much in each of us that remains unconscious. On the other hand, human beings are also capable of what Aquinas calls universal self-knowledge. This consists of knowing a universal, such as human, soul, person, or some, something similar, and considering oneself as an instance of the universal. For example, one might reason, all human beings have an intellectual soul, I am a human being, therefore I have an intellectual soul. Or every intellectual soul is immortal, my soul is an intellectual soul, soul therefore my intellectual soul is immortal. According to Aquinas, singular self-knowledge is easy to come by. Everyone has it, everyone who's awake at least, Aquinas says mere presence of mind suffices. For universal self-knowledge, mere presence of mind does not suffice, but requires a careful and subtle inquiry. 
It requires long research into human nature, the soul, and related matters. Our self-knowledge both singular and is both singular and universal, but what Burgos calls the experience of our subjectivity seems to be the same as what Aquinas calls singular self-knowledge or perception of oneself as distinct from universal self-knowledge. Following the principles of Thomas Aquinas, Bernard Lonergan has elaborated an account of human consciousness with great clarity and scientific rigor. Lonergan first distinguishes between the presence of an object to a subject and self-presence. The presence of an object to a subject is the essence of all sensory and intellectual knowledge. Cats and dogs, for example, are given to us as objects of sensation and understanding. Self-presence, on the other hand, is not the presence of an object to a subject or to a cognitive power, but is the presence of a subject to himself or herself. Self-presence is one's experience of oneself, not as an object, but as a subject. Self-presence is the essence of consciousness, both, I think, for Aquinas and for Lonergan. It is what Aquinas called singular self-knowledge or perception. It is an act of the intellect, and it is experiential awareness of oneself as distinct from conceptual knowledge or objective understanding or universal knowledge of oneself. On the basis of the distinction between the two types of presence, Lonergan elaborates an account of the subject or the person as a subject. The metaphysical subject is that which is or exists in its own right as distinct from an accident. The psychological subject is that which is conscious. Persons, human persons, are both metaphysical subjects and psychological subjects. The former, being a, a metaphysical subject, does not come in degrees. Socrates either exists or he doesn't. But the latter, being a psychological subject, does come in degrees. For human beings go from being asleep to awake. They go from one degree of alertness to another, and they grow and mature in their experience of themselves as subjects over time. In reply to Burgos's claim that the Thomistic account of persons cannot handle our experience of our subjectivity without excessive complexity, I submit Lonergan's account of consciousness. It is simpler, clearer, more rigorous, and more exact than much of what I have found in personalistic and phenomenological literature on consciousness and the experience of subjectivity. To wrap it up, I'll close with one thought. Burgos calls for the development of an account of the human person in terms of three levels, the somatic, the psychological, and the spiritual. Burgos does not think Aquinas offers any such account, but in fact, Aquinas does. For Aquinas, human beings live and act as spirit, soul, and body. Based on Lonergan's account of consciousness, Thomists can also say we live and act in all three ways, not only as metaphysical subjects, but as psychological subjects in Lonergan's sense. Our spiritual, sensual, and physical activities are given to each of us 
inwardly in our self-presence, more or less, in degrees and stages of awareness. In other words, we ordinarily experience ourselves as persons who live spiritually, sensually, and physically. To say so is a starting point for just the sort of account Burgos and other personalists are seeking. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.